The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. And welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, March 16th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, best-selling author David Kirby. Many listeners may remember David from his New York Times best-selling book, Evidence of Harm, winner of the 2005 Investigative Reporters and Editors Award for Best Book, and finalist for the New York Public Library Helen Bernstein Award for Excellence in Journalism. Our topic today is David's meticulously researched release that weaves alarming facts with intriguing first-hand accounts from activists. David Kirby's riveting new book, Animal Factory. David, thanks for sharing your time with our listeners today. Thank you, Terry. The first insight that became apparent to me when I began reading your book is that there are some items, very basic items, most vital to citizens' health, that most Americans don't even think to question. Why do you think that is? I think because we have been kept in the dark about how our food is produced, so we haven't really paid it much thought. And I I, I say in the introduction to the book, uh, I know people that when they go out and buy a stereo or a new car, or even a piece of clothing. I mean, they research it. They go online. They check the, you know, the quality. What does Consumer Reports say? I mean, they really know where many of the things they buy come from and how they were made. And yet, they'll go down to the supermarket and just fill up their cart and not even think twice. Um, we have been so separated from our food and our farmers that most people now think that. Eggs come in a styrofoam crate, and chicken comes wrapped in cellophane, and we don't really think about where it all began. <clears throat> and I naively thought that most of our animal protein, I mean, I had heard the term factory farm, and I kind of sort of knew that Farmer Brown down the lane <laughs> was not providing the bulk of the food, but I never put it all together and, and really asked myself where it was coming from. Mm -hmm. So I was guilty of it as as much as anybody. Well, David, and I want you to know, although this book has made me take a good hard look at many food production tactics and the improvements they need, it hasn't made me anti-food. No, I'm not anti-food. I'm not even anti-meat. And uh, we can talk about that because uh, uh, these activists that I write about, and there are many similarities between this and evidence of harm, um, have been called anti-agriculture, and uh, that is a tantamount of being called anti-food, and it's just a ridiculous label. Yeah. Well, let's take an overall look at the book first. Animal Factory provides history of industrial meat and dairy production and the dangers these pose to the nation's environment and really 
the Global Citizenry House. How did you decide to focus on the locations in North Carolina, Washington, the Midwest, and the Delmarva Peninsula? Sure. Um, I had to choose uh, a small number of, of characters and locations. I, in typical fashion, over-reported this book. Um, I went to 20 different states. I, I, I stayed on people's farms. I met people uh, who are having problems uh, with factory farms in their areas. And uh, initially, I think I had probably five, six, seven main characters, all with extremely compelling stories to tell. But my agent and my editor told me I, it wouldn't be fair to the reader uh, to have that many main characters. It gets too confusing. It's too too onerous. <clears throat> and uh, I, I narrowed it down. I think at one point I had it down to five, and they still said no. And then I had it down to four, and I, they kept saying three, three. I guess three is a great literary number and uh so eventually i did have to narrow it down to three it was uh a painful process and and i I still included everybody else in the book but there are three main stories so in choosing my three main stories I, i i not only wanted three really compelling people with with compelling stories but i wanted a a a geographic uh distribution i wanted a range I thought it was very important to show how these problems are happening uh, across the country. And I wanted to highlight different types of animal agriculture. Now, as it turned out, the three people I chose and the three places I chose, uh, Helen Redout in the Yakima Valley of Washington, who has been dealing with, with mega dairies, uh, Karen Hudson in uh, Illinois in a small town who has been dealing with both mega dairies and uh, large hog farms, and then down here in North Carolina, where I am right now, uh, with Rick Dove, uh, where in North Carolina the, the issue has been uh, mostly hog farms, but uh, poultry operations are, are coming in in large numbers. And there, I do towards the end of the book, there's sort of a fourth character who becomes more prominent in the, in the narrative. Her name is Carol Morrison, and she just got out of the chicken business. Uh, in Maryland, in the east shore of, of Chesapeake. So I did want to include uh, the chicken industry as well. Uh, that was the broiler industry, which is completely different from the layer industry. Uh, probably a lot of people don't realize that the chickens we eat are nothing like the chickens who, who lay our eggs. Right, and, and nothing like the farm stories we grew up reading about. Well, David... You're certainly right. Um, this book is very compelling. You made marvelous choices. It's very detailed and, and meticulous, uh, and um, and also shows that uh, how these areas and the, the consequences of what happens in these areas relate to the rest of the world. So, can you please define for our listeners what a CAFO is? Sure, a CAFO. Some people do call them CAFOs. Uh, is a concentrated animal feeding operation otherwise known as a factory farm. Industry hates the term factory farm, but I think it actually sounds a little bit better than concentrated animal feeding operation. You're talking about where your food comes from. Um, They are defined as having what's called a a 1,000 animal units. A a beef cow is one animal unit. Uh, Dairy cows are slightly... uh, It depends on how much manure they produce. But it's it's a confined area where rather than on a traditional farm where animals go out and graze on pasture and then also manure on pasture and fertilize it, uh, the animals are kept and confined either in, in large outdoor lots or more typically 
inside giant hangar-like buildings uh, by the hundreds or thousands, and the food is brought in to them. Uh, and then the, the waste, which is usually liquefied or often liquefied, has to be exported off-site. Um, and again, I, 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 I eat meat, and I'm very pro-agriculture, and I'm very pro-animal agriculture. So when I started breaking down that word C-A-F-O, the A word I'm perfectly fine with, and the O word is perfectly innocuous. Farmer Brown's farm is an animal operation. There's nothing wrong with that. When you start feeding these animals, and the, when the sole purpose becomes feeding them and getting them to market as quickly as possible, not that there's anything wrong with a farmer getting their animals to market as quickly as possible, but a couple of things happen. One is uh, most animals are, or animals are genetically designed to be out on pasture or out on uh, outside uh, eating grubs or or insects or grass or whatever it is that they that they eat. Uh, and we mostly feed them grains in these large factory farms and. Cows, in particular, are not well suited to eating grain, uh, but that's what we feed them. So, so from from the start, the feed is not the right feed that the animal naturally is supposed to eat. Uh, then we add things to the feed to make the animals grow faster: antibiotics, uh, heavy metals like copper and zinc, and arsenic uh, for chicken and pigs to make them grow faster. And then finally, if you're only if you're only concerned about the feeding and really the fattening of these animals, and they do get them to market size in just uh, un- almost science fiction uh, amounts of time. It's so quick. Um, the problem is if you're only concentrating on the feeding of the animals, you're ignoring all the other things that that animal was meant to do, was born and genetically designed to do, which is to go outside, to feed on pasture, to have a social life, to establish a pecking order, um, to mate, to forage, to nest, to do like like sows. A female pig is completely genetically programmed when she's pregnant and about to give birth. She needs to nest, and instead we lock them up in cages. So the animals aren't treated as animals are supposed to be treated. And then finally, the concentration of these animals and the concentration of the manure that is produced is very problematic, <clears throat> both in terms of disease and in terms of pollution and in terms of, again, the, the manure, there's just too many animals in too small of a space. Well, David, you know, I read the story in the book about cows being up to their udders in, in excrement, and I just found that to be really disgusting. And, and too, when you're, you talked about the confinement of these animals and how they were treated, and I've got, I've got to think that that's some really bad karma going into the resulting food. There's there's no love going into these animals, and and some truly um, heinous conditions. Yeah, you know, farming is a business, and it's not about love. They, people don't raise animals because they're cute. Um, they don't feed animals like we feed our pets because you want to keep them around. It's a business, and it, it, I know this sounds cold-hearted. So I don't know if the animals necessarily have to be raised with love, but they have to be raised with respect. Um, they're sustaining us with, with their bodies, with their milk, with their eggs. <clears throat> so I think we owe it to them uh, to treat them with a minimum of, of welfare <laughs> that they don't always get. And, yes, if you believe in karma, um, some of this food is not good for you. 
All right, and we will pick up with this when we come back with David Kirby on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back talking about Animal Factory. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on The Voice America Business Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with David Kirby, best-selling author who has just released Animal Factory. And David, before the break, we were talking about CAFOs, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. You were talking about the confinement of the animals. How did such an unnatural situation of food production evolve? This started with the chicken industry way back in, I think, the 1940s when that industry was consolidated Excuse me, and what is called vertically integrated, whereby the company basically controls and owns the animal uh, from conception uh, right up until the supermarket. Uh, some people call it semen to cellophane marketing, where they control every step um, of production and they own the animals. Most of these farmers that grow these animals for the companies, they don't own it. They own the manure and they own the debt and they own the liability but they don't actually, they can't even eat their own animals, which I just found astounding. Wow. Um, Carol Morrison, who was a chicken grower uh, for Purdue uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland, uh, if they wanted to eat chicken, they had to get in the car and drive down to the Safeway and buy a Purdue from the supermarket. Um, That's not farming, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. So it started with the chicken industry, and then... uh, uh, basically, the, the dairy industry and the pork industry and the egg industry 
got involved. The beef industry has still not been consolidated uh, nearly as much. Most beef is still grown uh, by individual ranchers and farmers uh, in small numbers. Uh, the cows do end up in a feedlot, typically, unless you buy purely grass-fed beef, uh, for the last couple months of their life. Uh, and cattle can can range on areas that won't support food, that won't support crops, and they can take scrubland and grassland and turn that uh, into protein fairly efficiently. So not that beef gets a, uh, a, a free pass here, but it's not really set up in the same way as these other animal industries are. And uh, basically, you know, like I said, the companies control it. They contract out with the growers. Um, they tend to also control the all-important processing plants. If you can't get your animal slaughtered and packaged, uh, I know that sounds kind of rough, but that's what happens, uh, that animal is, is, is worthless, uh, has no market value. So whoever controls the processing plants also controls the market and access to consumers, and that's oftentimes uh, the same companies that own the animals. And how do these cafes affect the population's ability to find wholesome, safe food? Well, you know, I don't want to say that CAFO-raised food is unwholesome or unsafe um, as a, you know, a sweeping general statement like that. And wholesome is a, is a subjective term anyway. Sometimes the food is unsafe. I mean, we're seeing a lot of recalls these days. Uh, and we do know that, that fresh pork ha- runs the risk of carrying MRSA uh, in the meat. Uh, we do know that, you know, mad cow has been located, identified in this country, um, so, uh, but we also know things like uh, pasture-fed uh, cows, uh, pasture-fed grass, excuse me, grass-fed <laughs> dairy uh, is apparently better. It has more omega-3s, and it has another substance uh, whose name escapes me, but it is a, a believed to be a cancer-fighting substance. So there is some literature in the science to suggest that grass-fed dairy and grass-fed meat is actually healthier for us or, or has better things in it. Um, but the whole point of my book is we are consumers. We live in a free country. We have freedom of choice um, in, a, in a purely capitalistic, market-driven society. It's, it's the market. It's the consumers who are supposed to basically decide what gets made by the producers. But when it comes to our food, we tend to abdicate that, and now people are catching on. And people are demanding alternatives. They are demanding choice. They are finding ways to set aside a little bit more money because this food is more expensive right now. Um, so there are more and more alternatives out there all the time. Um, but, again, not everybody can afford them, and not everybody has access to them. And one thing I do worry about is that we're heading towards a two-tiered food system uh, in this country where, uh, poor and working class people basically eat the mass-produced cheap stuff and people who have more income to spend on food because we spend very little on our food uh, and it wouldn't be that hard for some families to spend more. Um, those that are able will, will be buying the, the uh, perhaps more nutritionally beneficial food, um, certainly the food that was raised sustainably and in a way that... Um, well, some people say tastes better, too. Absolutely. Good observations, David. And I would also argue that as part of choice, consumers need to have truly informed consent. And I think that that's a very important 
um, function that your book uh, takes care of, providing truly informed consent about how these foods are produced. Well, let's go to North Carolina. Did politicians in North Carolina know in advance that the factory pig farming there would overwhelm the community? What kinds of political entanglements allowed the problem to occur and continue? Yeah, I'm, I think some politicians didn't know. Um, I think maybe they were hoodwinked by industry. Um, what happened in North Carolina is pretty interesting, and I, I detail it quite a bit in the book. Uh, two things kind of happened at the same time. One is that tobacco became a lot less popular in this country, and people started quitting smoking, and a lot of tobacco, I'm in North Carolina right now, a lot of tobacco farmers were facing a very bleak future, and they, they had to pay off their their land, and they, you know, they own property, and, and they were looking at uh, losing their markets, and they needed to do something. At the same time, uh, the pork industry was beginning to consolidate, and here in North Carolina was a man named Wendell Murphy, who decided he was going to get in on it, and he was going to build a little pork empire of his own. Uh, he also happened to be a state senator in North Carolina, and uh, he was drafting and supporting and voting on legislation that completely benefited the industrial pork infrastructure here, uh, even as he <laughs> owned pork farms, uh, something that is not illegal in North Carolina, <clears throat> believe it or not. Legislators are allowed to vote on measures that affect them economically as long as they promise they're not doing it <laughs> simply for benefit to themselves, um, which he did because he said it was going to benefit the state. So um, farmers were desperate. They needed something else to grow. These, this big company, uh, uh, <clears throat> Murphy Family Farms, which later merged with Smithfield and is now part of a company called Murphy Brown, believe it or not, which is owned by Smithfield, uh, they would come into these towns uh, with contracts, with shiny pamphlets showing cute pictures of little baby pigs and kids playing with the pigs and made it look nice and told them they could make money and that they had a guaranteed market and basically everything was going to be taken care of for them. You, we're going to help you get the loan. We're going to show you how to design the barns. We're going to bring in the people to... to uh, build the equipment and the mechanized feeding operations, etc. We're going to help you dig your lagoon. <clears throat> and then, you know, three, four, five times a year, we're going to take those animals away from you and give you a check. And uh, it caught on, and, and a lot of people got in on it. Uh, and that's how it spread. You know, lagoon sounds like such a nice word. I think of Blue Lagoon, Gill Gilligan's Island. But what really are these lagoons? They're cesspools. They're giant toilets. They're 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 35 million gallon porta potties out dug into the ground. And this morning I was with Rick Dove, who used to be the News River keeper here. He now works for the Waterkeeper Alliance. But uh, we went up in a plane uh, with a TV reporter and uh, flew over one hog farm after the other and one lagoon after the other. And you could see it's been raining here a lot. And those lagoons are inches. I mean inches away from the rim. And those guys are going to have to go out and start spraying like crazy just to get the, the water levels down. <clears throat> and in the meantime, uh, you could see the lagoons were literally 5, 10, 15 feet from creeks, rivers, streams, wetlands, things like that. 
and just you know one overtopping or one good rain or one breach in that earthen berm, and you've ruined a river and you've killed fish. So uh, waste lagoons are just just basically stupid. Uh, it's terrible technology. <clears throat> it's obsolete. We really should get rid of them. Uh, they emit gases. They emit ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, methane. Uh, the ammonia can travel for, for many, many, many miles. It settles back into waterways and turns into nitrogen, uh, which causes algae blooms, which causes fish kills. So a lagoon, you know, 50 miles away might be killing fish right outside your door in, in your river, uh, and, and you wouldn't even know that was the cause. How does the pollution from factory farming compare with pollution from other industrialists, such as those who emit ammonia air pollution? You know, it's 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 hard to compare one to the other, um, but I would say that the pollution from factory farms is not benign. Uh, again, because of the concentration, because of the liquefaction, so that you have this anaerobic decomposition which creates all these gases and everything else, as opposed to a, a sustainable farm. Um, just And because of the additives put into the feed, um, this manure is very toxic, and some of it is, is extremely toxic. I've, I've been to places where there was so much copper and so much zinc in the manure that when it, when it, when it was applied to a land, it just killed the land, and now nothing will grow there for the next 50 years. So um, the, the 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 system is not sustainable. I think that's that's we, you know the, these things are going to be around for a long time, but they can't last forever. Right. One of the most dramatic and sad stories in your book was the story about what happened in North Carolina after Hurricane Floyd. Yeah, Floyd was amazing. And again, I was just up in the air and we saw some of the places that got wiped out by Floyd. They've been rebuilt now, but you could see how, what a mess it must have been. Uh, that was in, uh, I believe 1999. And Floyd came on the heels of two other, uh, hurricanes that came through here. <clears throat> and, uh, all three of them, uh, really made a mess of the place. But, but Floyd was by far the worst. Uh, it basically just wiped these these things out, and a lot of them are built in floodplains, and when the water comes, it, it just, as you can imagine, just flushes out these multi-million gallon pools of waste, uh, but it also flushes the animals out. It just blows them out of the barn, and Rick finally got up in a plane and flew around and, and of course, saw streams of waste, uh, just ribbons of brown going to the river, and pigs floating around, some dead, some still alive. This is very sad. We're going to be back in a minute with David Kirby talking about Animal Factory. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. 
Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with David Kirby author of Animal Factory, and this is truly a, a riveting book, a great read. It's from St. Martin's Press. And, David, before the break, we were talking about the situation in North Carolina, and when you say that it kills some fish, can you just paint a picture for our listeners because I don't think that that really paints the picture of what happened to the fish. Yeah, the fish were dying. They, they, they just had a big fish kill uh, earlier this year. The fish were dying by the hundreds of millions. One time up to a billion fish died uh, here in the Noose River. And uh, a couple things would happen. One is if, if the nutrients got too high and the algae blooms would occur um, at night, the algae sucks the ox- oxygen out of the water. And they have what's called a fish jubilee uh, because the fish will come up to the banks uh, to try to get into the shallowest water they possibly can so they can try to force air and water through their gills in a desperate attempt to get oxygen. And, of course, by morning, they're all dead. Uh, <clears throat> they call it Jubilee because the people come and pick up all the dead fish to take home for dinner, which is kind of gross. Um, but uh, that's one way that the fish died, and the other way was through this horrible genoflagellate called Fisteria, which has about 19 different stages to its lifestyle cycle. Uh, it's typically a in a cyst-like state at the bottom of the river, <clears throat> but if uh, if it gets wakened, <clears throat> it will go out and basically hunt fish. It, it turns from, from plant life 
into an animal predator. It's, it's astonishing. Uh, and it will emit a toxin to stun the fish and then will start devouring their flesh. So uh, Rick and neighbors would wake up sometimes to just the stench of millions and millions and millions of dead fish, crabs, shrimp, eel, uh, and every species of fish uh, lining the beaches, uh, so much that you couldn't even bulldoze them away. They just had to rot back into the river. Um, and that was caused not just by farming, but just by overdevelopment, by, by too much nitrogen and too much phosphorus getting into the water. And fisteria is toxic for humans as well. Absolutely. The, Rick was a fisherman, and he and the other fishermen here in North Carolina uh, started getting the, the same red sores that they saw on the fish. They were getting on their parts of the skin that touched the water, and then the toxin was making them disoriented. They were losing their memory. Uh, fishermen would be out on the middle of the river and not even remember how to get home. Mm-hmm. It would take them hours to try to figure out even which way up or down the river they lived. Mm. Uh, very, very nasty stuff. David, during your research, what is it that impressed you most about the spirit of the families closest to the situations who had been adversely affected? That is, your most lasting impression of the activists who mobilized and who stood up to the bosses of the CAFOs and those who controlled them? Yeah, that's easy. That's the exact same thing as the autism parents I wrote about in Evidence of Harm. They never, ever, ever give up, and they will not. This cause is too important to them. They are too engaged. They know the stakes are too high, and even though they're exhausted and probably financially tapped and you know, spend more time fighting polluters than, than they would like to, maybe even more time than they do with their families, they're not going to stop. And, and, and also, probably like the big autism uh, fights that are going on, uh, this is not going to end anytime soon. So they're in it for the long haul. Uh, they're, they're energized. Uh, they, they win victories, and then they take their licks. I would say they've had more victories than uh, the autism parents trying to uh, push biomedical treatments and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's not easy to fight agribusiness uh, <laughs> any easier than it is to fight uh, the pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. I'd like to highlight some quotes from your wonderful book. You had a a quote on page 111 that reminds me so much of parents of children with autism who believe it was caused by vaccine. Here's the quote. But care members had no intention of pocketing any court award they might get. Award money would eventually be directed to well water testing in the valley. Quote, I'd be glad if we didn't have to sue at all. Helen told Don, I'd be glad if they just cleaned up and we could all move on. And David, you wrote about an activist who received intimidating letters talking about frivolous lawsuits, too. Yeah, a lot of parallels (laughs) there, aren't there? Um, No, nobody wants to sue. Uh, The government should have stepped in on its own uh, to enforce the Clean Water Act, but uh, that was Helen Redout up in Washington State and, and the citizens took it upon themselves reluctantly to do it. Uh, they won. They got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that money is now being spent on well water testing up in the valley. And it's so bad that the EPA has showed up, and now they're testing the well water. And, of course, it's the poor people in the valley who depend on well water, and uh, the nitrate levels are exceedingly high. 
Uh, and nitrate in drinking water can cause diabetes. It can cause spontaneous abortions. It can cause uh, blue baby syndrome and, and other terrible things. Um, and they suspect that it's going to be the cow manure that, 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 that increased the nitrate levels in the, in the well water. But these activists who, like the parents in my first book, were normal, everyday American citizens. Uh, in, in this case, they were farmers and fishermen. They were largely conservative, uh, largely Republicans, uh, not particularly political, not particularly environmentally aware, uh, or and certainly not activists. But they were challenged, they were offended, and they saw a threat. And they rose up to defend their, their families and their communities and their homes and farms. Uh, but they took on a huge industry with just bottomless pockets. Uh, and uh, a government that was uh, very much uh, in association with that industry. And an industry that is seen as wholesome and pure and necessary and life-giving. Wow, what uh, a great parallel to draw, David. <laughs> So if you take on the food industry, and now now just like parents who question vaccine safety are called anti-vaccine, and you know I get called anti-vaccine, and I think you know me, Terry, that I'm not anti-vaccine. I do think parents should vaccinate their kids, but I have some questions about the way the vaccines are made and about whether the current vaccine schedule is appropriate to give to every single newborn baby in this country. But by asking those questions, what, how are these vaccines produced? What are their ingredients? What goes into them? And are they appropriate for everybody? Uh, I get labeled anti-vaccine. You get labeled anti-vaccine. Well, it's the same for the people in Animal Factory. When they start questioning how the food is being made and it, is this having health consequences that were unintended, but we need to maybe recognize them and address them, they get labeled as anti-agriculture. And, and they get labeled as terrorists. And, and they get called all kinds of horrible names, <clears throat> which um, I'm sure parents listening right now can can can, can identify with. Um, but it just it, it shows you how the quality of the debate disintegrates immediately, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's infuriating. I think, and and you know, you want to have a good, substantive conversation, perhaps with the other side, but they just turn around and call you names, and, and I think it makes them look worse. Uh, to call somebody anti-agriculture is just nuts. You know, that means you're anti-food, like you said. And what are we going to do without anti- you know, ag- agriculture? <laughs> and we're going to eat rocks fried in mineral oil? I mean, just the label itself is silly. And the label anti-vaccine, I know some people are anti-vaccine, and that's fine. They have every right to be anti-vaccine. I, I, I'm not one of those people. But to just label somebody with an untrue name just because they're asking questions about safety does not happen. People who question car safety are not labeled anti-car. People who who question uh, aviation safety are not labeled anti-airplane. So it's 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 unfortunate, but it just comes with the territory. And we have we have a. Many examples of this in your book, and you've just alluded to concerted campaigns to marginalize activists. Here, here are a couple of the quotes. 
you quoted Karen Hudson of Farm, which is Families Against Rural Messes, as saying, quote, in an attempt to discredit us, corporate sympathizers claim our concern is based on emotion, not science. This <laughs> lack of respect for legitimate problems has led us to be skeptical that our concerns will be addressed through normal political processes, end quote. What kinds of science did the activists cite, and how did industry respond to that? Sure, but couldn't that sentence have been lifted right from evidence of harm, word for word? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, well, um, these activists <clears throat> have, I would say, a lot more science uh, behind them than uh, the parents do, but that's because so many researchers and academics and scientists are willing to do this work, um, probably without quite as much fear of, <clears throat> retribution. The, the way it happens in agriculture is uh, a lot of the research gets done at government-sponsored agriculture schools. Every state has one, what's called land-grant college. And, and in the Bush years, um, a lot of the government-funded science got cut, and it was replaced by industry-funded science. So a lot of the studies you see coming out of the, the big state ag schools uh, states like uh, Cornell or Purdue or the University or North Carolina State University um, tend to be f fairly favorable towards industry. Those are the studies that you see uh, saying that the animals are safer and warmer, kept in confinement, that they're you know they're kept away from predators and disease and things like that. That they, given a choice, the animals would go inside anyway. I've, I've actually seen studies that, that say that. <clears throat> but fortunately, you have lots and lots of other independent universities and independent scientists that are not affiliated with the food industry, uh, that aren't necessarily at all affiliated with the government, uh, and even government agencies, maybe not USDA, but the FDA and the CDC and the EPA, and they're getting better. They're getting a lot better under Obama uh, or under the current administration compared to the past. Um, you know, even they act pretty responsibly on a lot of these issues. Uh, so you do have a large number of scientists who can get the funding and do studies, and we'll talk about it when we get back about what those studies are and what they found. All right, very good. We'll be back with the studies. And David Kirby, author of Animal Factory from St. Martin's Press, when we return to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Um...
If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. You've read the books, listened to the CDs, and gone to the workshops to learn spirituality. Now there's a way to help you live it every single day. The Spiritual Workout with Stephen Morrison. Call with any issue at all and Stephen will passionately help you see which of 15 universally spiritual concepts apply to your circumstance and how. Practice every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on The Spiritual Workout on 7th Wave Network. It's a practical path to a happier, more peaceful, and richer life experience. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with best-selling author David Kirby, author of Animal Factory. David, before the break, you were talking about studies. Yes, and... Oh, go ahead. Hello? Yes, I'm here. Okay, and you wanted to further comment on that. Yeah, I just wanted to say that there is... I mean, the science is is almost irrefutable. Uh, The factory farms can pollute. Uh, They can leach uh, nutrients into groundwater, into surface water that they do admit toxic substances, that people who live near them uh, do suffer greater risk of, of uh, asthma, of certain autoimmune diseases, even uh, mood and irritability disorders because of the odors that they put up with. Uh, there are plenty of economic studies that show how displacement happens, how uh, these uh, force family farms out of business but don't replace them with, with good-paying jobs. Um, so... The activists in my book, when, when they cite the studies, uh, they, plus I mean, they have a lot in their arsenal. Plus, they have the entire Pew Commission, which looked into this. And I urge anybody uh, who's interested in this to go online and look up the uh, Pew Commission uh, report on industrial farm animal practices. And uh, before that, the University of Iowa uh, published a whole phalanx of papers uh, in uh, a magazine that probably your listeners know well, Environmental Health Perspectives, uh, which is published by the National Institutes of um, Environmental Health Sciences. And uh, those papers are also quite devastating. And, of course, industry howled uh, about them. But these were done by by some of the the top scientists in the country. Um, And they found things like we're we're, we're heading towards antibiotic resistance and and I think some of the other things that you you want to talk about next. Okay, why don't we go into that. Tell us about MRSA and mad cow disease and really how this is all connected to the the global ecosystem and the the interdependency of the global food chain. Yes. Um, Well, we, we, we have mad cow disease, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, we have MRSA. Uh, we have other antibiotic-resistant bacteria, Salmonella, E. coli. Uh, we have swine flu. Uh, we have um, other diseases that 
typically would not emerge on a small, sustainable, family-run farm. These diseases typically come from the industrial setting. Now, BSE is very interesting. Uh, We haven't had very many cases reported in this country, uh, but we do know that downer cows uh, still get slaughtered. BSE is bovine spongiform encephalopathy, uh, which literally means uh, spongy cow brain disease. And, of course, uh, it can be transferred to people. Uh, we've only had a few cases reported. Nobody knows exactly how many cows have actually come down with the disease. <clears throat> um, and the problem, the way cows uh, get it, uh, mad cow disease, is by eating products that contain other cows. Uh, and we allow that practice to continue. And I, I, I need, I have a phone call into the FDA about, USDA about this. No, I take that back. <laughs> FDA, it gets confusing. Uh, <clears throat> USDA controls all agriculture, but the FDA controls the feed, believe it or not. Uh, and FDA, uh, I believe, still permits uh, bovine products to be put into cattle feed uh, in different ways. So I won't get into the details, and they're pretty disgusting, to be honest. But <clears throat> that is a, a continued concern and, and, and threat. I, I'm not overly uh, hyperventilating about mad cow disease, A, because, well, there's not enough monitoring going on, but but there have only been a few cases. Um, they've all been reported, by the way, in dairy cows, which end up as hamburger meat after they're finished giving milk. Um, the other slightly comforting thing about BSE is in the U.K., when it was a real problem, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of cows that were determined to have it. Uh, and only, uh, only, but you know, only a few hundred cases, or maybe a thousand cases, in humans. So uh, it's possible to eat beef from a cow that had BSE and, and not get the disease. So that's that's you know, small. Well, it's it's pretty good comfort. Um, MRSA, of course, is is a, a methicillin resistant staph bacteria. Um, and MRSA is now more common than AIDS in this country, kills more people than AIDS in this country, and part of the thing that's the problem is, is, is coming from pig farms because we give pigs too many antibiotics as we're raising them. <clears throat> Swine flu, uh, the latest one, six of the eight viral components uh, were traced back to a pig farm, a factory farm, right here in North Carolina back in 1998, and it was officials at the CDC who were greatly concerned about this because they knew that that virus was still circulating and that one day it was going to mutate again and it was going to jump back over to people and it was going to cause problems and that's exactly what happened. Um, We don't know exactly when and where it jumped back over to people. Uh, Fortunately, I feel like we kind of dodged a bullet with swine flu. Uh, It wasn't as bad as people feared. In fact, it turned out to be a pretty benign flu season. Uh, but people still died, and it was hugely disruptive and hugely expensive, and we spent a hell of a lot of money on vaccine that people didn't take, uh, and we would have been better off without having swine flu, you know, come our way. So um, all of these things evolved in the industrial animal setting. Well, I would observe, David, that the costs of allegedly economizing are magnitudes worse to humanity and the environment in other ways, cutting corners in one spot causes exorbitant costs in the others, just like what happens with autism and cheap vaccines. So in the areas of industrialized meat and dairy production, too, we're now having newer, more widespread diseases evolving. 
Yeah, imagine if somebody came up with a way to, to build a car for $2,000. Would you buy it? <laughs> Would you drive it? Sure, it's cheap, but is it going to get you where you want to go safely? Um, you know, we have the cheapest food in the world, and, and again, families are struggling. I'm, I'm not smug or flippant about, you know, a budget that, that a family has to follow, but maybe if we invested a little bit more money in controlling the pollution in curbing the antibiotics, in raising animals in a healthier environment where they didn't get sick, uh, some of this stuff wouldn't come back to bite us. And, and you know, for an extra, I don't know, 10% on, on, on the price tag in the supermarket, maybe we could save billions on the other side. Right, exactly. And just in case anybody thinks that... Uh, the person uh, who we quoted earlier is uh, as a uh, paranoid conspiracy theorist or something. Let's talk about what the other side has done. You have on page 297 in your book, quote, In November 2004, the Minnesota Farm Bureau released a 27-page booklet titled, When an Activist Group Comes to Town. The handy little guide was created to demonize people who opposed CAFOs, especially anti-farming groups such as the Grace Factory Farm Project. The Bureau urged its membership to take square aim at those who oppose farm expansion, minimizing them as outsiders dividing vulnerable communities and farmers. Yeah, how about that? And virtually all of the members of the Grace Factory Farm Project were farmers. Helen Redout is a cherry farmer. Uh, Karen Hudson and her husband are corn and soybean farmers in in. Uh, Illinois. So here they were calling farmers anti-farming, which again is just absurd. And again, the parallels are there. And uh, outsiders, dangerous, troublemakers, fringe, emotional, anti-science. Sound familiar, Terry? Yeah, and um, and uh, Polly Tommy, who you and I both know, uh, whom you and I both know, observed. If I had been anti-vaccine, my son would be out playing with his friends right now. You know, if we had yeah. been anti-vaccine, our kids wouldn't be in this fix. You know well, what? If I was anti-vaccine, I would say so. <laughs> I wouldn't do some complicated dance trying to pretend I'm something I'm not. I'm a journalist. I tell the truth, you know. Well, and I'm not anti-food. Or anti-car. <laughs> I'm not even anti-car. Nope. Well, David, where can listeners pick up a copy of this excellent book? Uh, if it's not in your bookstore, it's probably because it's sold out, which is nice to know. Uh, ask them to order another copy. It's available on all online sellers. And uh, you, more information is at my website, animalfactorybook.com, and you can always order it there, too. You have a wonderful quote in Animal Factory that I'd like to end with. The work was grueling, time-consuming, and expensive. The opposition was well-funded and well-organized, but retreat was not an option. David, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Terry. And to our listeners, David Kirby will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2010 conference in Chicago in May, as well as over 150 additional great presenters. Please visit David Kirby's Animal Factory website at www.animalfactorybook.com. Animal Factory is from St. Martin's Press. My guest next week is Megan Carrick talking about sensory integration therapy. For any questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
Friends of Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.